welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Artan Gruby, first Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Political System and Relations Between Communities in North Macedonia. In today's episode, they discuss the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on North Macedonia, youth engagement, and the country's accession process with the European Union. Uh, again, thank you so much, uh, uh, Artan, for taking the time. If I may call you Artan, of course, or, or, uh, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Gruby. My official title is First Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Political System, but please call me Artan. It makes me feel younger. Oh, <laughs> you're young. You're young. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you again. Anyway, I wanted to ask you a few questions and uh, discuss a number of issues. Specifically, uh, since you came and became a deputy prime minister, and w the, the coronavirus, needless to say, has been uh, a horrible thing that has been inflicted on the international community, and no country has been spared, only to only to a certain degree here and there. Uh, what was the impact of the uh, virus on, Macedon on North Macedonia? And how is the government is dealing with it at this juncture? Uh, thank you for your question. It was uh, <clears throat> uh, last year in October. Uh, my country failed to get the date for the uh, start of the accession talks with the European Union. And subsequently, the prime minister resigned. Uh, so the resignation came into effect on the 3rd of January which means we formed a technical government, then we dismissed the parliament and we called the elections on the 12th, early parliamentary elections on the 12th of uh, April uh, this year. But uh, after we uh, basically had the parliament dissolved, uh, the coronavirus came through in the at the end of uh, February. I think we had the first case registered on the 26th of uh, February. So, which meant uh, we had to also postpone the uh, elections, uh, which were scheduled for the 12th of April. And uh, you can imagine the consequences, having a technical government in place, uh, having no functional parliament, so dismissed completely, and no yeah. elections uh, in order to have functional institutions with full political capacity uh, in order to make uh, the decisions. So we had to proclaim extraordinary situation in the country uh, through the president in order to be able uh, for the government to be able to make decisions laws without having a parliament a functioning uh, parliament so Correct. corona came to us in a institutional uh, chaos in the absence of uh, full capacity functioning institutions and uh, of course with an opposition that was uh, challenging uh, non-stop in the meantime, we organized elections on the 15th of July, and uh, we uh, elected the government uh, on the 30th of August, and now we are uh, fully uh, functioning. Uh, so uh, these crippled institutions previously um, managed uh, the, the, uh, the pandemic. And uh, however, we still have you know, uh, huge cases, especially in the last uh, four or five days, we have uh, five times more than what we used to have in infected cases, and the death toll is increasing. The average percentage is between 3.5 to 4 percent of uh, death cases, uh, whereas we have in the last days about 500 
uh, new infected, between 400 and 500 new, newly infected uh, citizens. So, so if you produce this to real numbers, how many people have died? How many people have died? Uh, let me just give you that exact number. So we have in total people who have died for 846. 846. I mean, given, given, of course, the size of the population, it's yes. quite significant. It's very, yes. very significant. Yeah. It's very significant. And, and, uh, we what have the government is taking now to cope with it since the establishment of the new government in, in July. And uh, what are the concrete steps have been taken? Uh, is, there, is there any kind of uh, national mandate, for example, wearing masks, maintaining social distancing, etc.? We adopted, well, we used to have full quarantine. Basically, nobody could have gone out for many days. We had closure of all uh, hotels, all bars, all uh, places where people could uh, gather. We uh, canceled school and it's still canceled. So only the children up to third primary grade go physically to school. Everybody else is online. Uh, so we are just in the process of adopting a new law in, in, in the parliament, which will allow the government ad uh, additional uh, competences. Uh, with regards to mandatory wearing masks, uh, even if you are alone out in the city. So you will have okay. to be wearing the mask. And today we just made the decision that we are shutting down all restaurants and all hotels and all uh, places where people can gather after uh, 11 o'clock p.m. in order to avoid uh, the spreading of the virus. We have concluded that public transport, as well as partying, uh, weddings, all kinds of celebrations are causing to the increase of the numbers according to the Infectious Disease Committee, which we met uh, last night. So that's why we just, uh, actually one hour ago, we made uh, these decisions. Uh, and, and obviously, with regards to the economy, uh, sorry? Now I was saying, obviously this has had a, and will have a considerable impact on the economy and economic development. How How is the government is going deal with, with this uh, economic setback, which is inadvertently going to happen, has already happened for that matter. We have adopted four uh, economical packages to assist uh, the, uh, the uh, economy in the country, especially the private sector, tourism, uh, and uh, the last one that we adopted since we were elected as government, the previous were adopted by the previous government. So the last one that we adopted was about 470 million euros in uh, assisting all uh, institutions, all uh, businesses that were uh, heavily uh, affected by the virus. Uh, so, uh, so far, uh, according to the uh, economic chambers in the country, they are satisfied with the government assistance, but that is really crippling the economy. And, uh, and where's, the, where's, the money, where's the money coming from? I mean, after all, if there's no revenue generated from various, from all the businesses, uh, no taxation is, uh, much of the taxation is being curtailed. So where is the money coming from for the government to assist the various institutions, schools, etc.? Last week, we reviewed the budget and we made cuts uh, in all of the ministries and all of those funds went to COVID. All the unproductive expenses basically go to the COVID fund as well as loans from the World Bank and other uh, international financial institutions. 
So, uh, so far, the Ministry of Finance and the government is managing. We are at the limits of uh, all the countries in the European Union, uh, maybe even a little bit better compared to some uh, leading countries in the European Union. But this cannot go forever. And the world has uh, have to learn to live with COVID and to work with COVID, basically. Have you been getting money from the United States at all? Uh, in this, on this, to, to alleviate the problem? United States is our uh, biggest, best strategic uh, partner and has been along with us throughout, since day one of our independence up to date. It has been our greatest supporter and every success that we have achieved, it has been a joint success of the United States as well as the European Union and of, of the uh, authority in the country. So yes, throughout the period, the U.S., through the uh, ambassador here, uh, but also in direct assistance. They have provided assistance to various institutions of the country, uh, medical supplies, masks, also financial contributions. So yes, we are very appreciative and uh, really very appreciative of the role of the U.S. throughout, not just during the crisis. So you feel you are, you are happy with, what, with the assistance that the Trump administration has provided? Can you also can you quantify that to some extent? I wouldn't know the details because it has been in several uh, several occasions. But the United States government has been uh, has been with us, especially through the USAID, but also direct from U.S. government assistance. So in details, right. I would not know to to tell you exactly right now. I would have to check. No, that's that's all right. I just as as wondering because. Uh, on the whole, Trump has sort of been withdrawing and um, from providing assistance to many countries has withdrawn that. And I was just wondering if uh, the administration here continue to support the Macedonian, North Macedonian government financially. And you're saying yes, and I, I'm, I feel better that, that actually this country is doing something about it, uh, given, given, of course, the situation here, which is not exactly rosy, as you can well imagine in the United States itself. Uh, yeah. I just want to ask you about uh, how is the EU is reacting to all of this and is um, what is the progress is being made? Because, you know, the prime minister promised that he's going to deal with the political reform. He's going to also deal with corruption. Has, has he been able to begin to, to do something concrete about this issue in terms of reform and corruption from your perspective? Yes, I believe... Uh... I believe that our partners in the European Union, but also in DC, uh, have recognized the reform spirit of this government, as well as the previous government. As you know, we undertook serious, serious reforms and we made so many sacrifices for our citizens. Uh, we changed the name yes. of the country. We changed the constitution. We achieved the deal with uh, Greece on the name dispute. We achieved the uh, deal with... Uh, the agreement with the Bulgaria on the good neighborly uh, relations. We wrapped up the Ocrid Peace Agreement in the country, which basically provides for the rights of the communities, for the equality between the citizens. Then we adopted all the laws that have to do with the reforms in the uh, security sector, as well as in the judiciary, uh, in the anti-corruption field. And uh, that's why, basically, we became the 30th NATO member and we had the decision of the U.S. Council of the European Union 
to open up negotiations for accession with uh, our country, which we are ex expecting to start end of December, mid-December, end of December. Hopefully that yeah, will not yeah. be complicated by the recent dispute that uh, we have with uh, our neighbor Bulgaria. Uh, that is complicating uh, the, the uh, first intergovernmental conference between our country and the European Union. But I believe we will, uh, we will go through. In my contacts with all the accredited ambassadors in the country, uh, we could see a recognition by the international community of the reforms that this government has undertaken, as well as the tasks that we have ahead of us. So we are really committed into initially uh, deal with the uh, function, functional rule of law, basically to be compatible with European standards and then uh, as well as the economy. These are the two absolute two uh, priorities for us. So, you know, I, I know that, of course, Mr. North Macedonia has been uh, the leading candidate for integration into the EU for some time now, and the EU to, to a great extent is um, happy with the various reforms that have been taken. And, and I know, of course, that North Macedonia has gravitated very strongly to become a member of the EU uh, as, as the negotiation progressed. This, having, this being said, how do you reconcile uh, your, um, the, your country's desire to become uh, a member of the EU and the influence that uh, Turkey is exerting um, in, in North Macedonia? Do you see any conflict between the two? And if there is, how are you reconciling that conflict? There is no conflict because uh, the entire society in the country is Western-oriented and uh, is Euro-Atlantic predetermined and determined. And there is absolutely no conflict or uh, basically no interest in our government or in most of the political parties in the country towards any other uh, alliances. We, our strategic interest is integration to NATO and the European Union. We have also an integrated uh, region uh, of the Southeast Europe uh, with our neighboring countries. So we do not see any conflict and no need for reconciliation because there is no interest with uh, regards to that issue. Yeah, I'm, I'm mentioning Turkey in particular because Turkey's relation with the EU is not exactly uh in the best of uh, conditions at this juncture. And from my understanding and looking at Turkey's situation, what Erdogan has been doing, he obviously does not want, uh, based on what I know, to see many countries join the EU, specifically when Turkey itself, it's a, for, for all intents and purposes, is no longer um, uh, a real candidate for integration. So you don't feel that the Turkey is trying to um, create distance between North Macedonia and the EU at this point. Is that what you think? Uh, I don't. Uh, I have not noticed that. Of course, all of the countries have their own uh, interests, uh, geopolitical. But uh, neither uh, Russian, neither Turkish, neither Chinese interests may influence uh, the determination of our citizens to uh, join NATO and the EU. Well, we are already members of NATO. You know, in overwhelming numbers in all the polls, uh, more than two-thirds of uh, the population support uh, European Union and NATO. So we have absolutely no doubt to where we belong. And uh, despite anybody else's interest, 
we know uh, our fate, we know where we want to be, and that is along with our Euro-American uh, friends and allies. Right. So I, I don't want to dwell on the issue of corruption. Is the, is the EU pushing in this direction? Do, are they looking for additional reform to, to uh, deal with effectively with, with, with any kind of corruption at, at any level, be that in the private sector or in the government? What, what is your take on that? Yes, actually, uh, in today's government session, we just uh, made a decision basically to ask for responsibility from one of the directors that was dealing with uh, EU money in the country for alleged misuse. So in order to send a, a signal to everyone that it will not be tolerated and that this government is committed to fight corruption uh, and to uh, basically uh, to support rule of law. Uh, the party that I represent in government is engaged for a full vetting of the judiciary, including the judges and the prosecutors, but also uh, the politicians. What we would like to see is establishing a regulatory body along with the Anti-Corruption Commission to be working on all the candidates for holders of public offices, as well as judges and prosecutors, and check their assets before uh, they get uh, elected. Uh, and uh, we strongly, strongly support because we think this is the only way to come to uh, unselective uh, justice. Fortunately, our partners in the coalition uh, are also committed to the uh, rule of law, and we think that uh, along with the support that we get from the European Union, but also the United States, we will be able in this mandate to return the credibility of the judiciary uh, with the citizens. And the judiciary obviously is, is extremely important in SSA, specifically when it comes to to uh, dealing with, with corruption, and and, um, and that's that is in, in a, uh, a critical issue. As as far as I know, the the EU is very concerned about that. <clears throat> they also concerned about the various reforms that continue needed still to be taken. As far as these reforms, what are some of the emphasis, what are some of the specific things that the EU still wanting to see happening at this point? Well, one of them is the anti-discrimination law, which has started uh, its procedure in Parliament. It was, adopted by the, uh, it was adopted by the government, and today we had a public debate on it. And uh, it was a law that was adopted by the previous composition of our Parliament, but it was abrogated by the then President and then it was returned back and it remained unadopted. So we continued with that. Only 10 days ago or two weeks ago, approximately, the European uh, Commissioner on Enlargement was visiting here and told us uh, the expectations. So they uh, hopefully uh, the first intergovernmental conference will be held on the 15th or around uh, middle of uh, December. And uh, then once we start opening all the chapters uh, for negotiations for accession in the EU, we will uh, tackle uh, chapter by chapter and issue by issue. But primarily it's rule of law, uh, specifically fight against corruption, uh, more specifically. And uh, uh, I believe that uh, the commitment of this government is not lacking not only uh, to uh, declarational level, but also practical and implementing level. And we are seeing it on, also today and on daily on daily basis. You will see it differently. 
different governing. I have nothing to say. I want to wish you the best in this regard. I know going through these many chapters in the negotiations is going to take a while, but as long as there is a commitment on the part of the government to proceed you know, with vigilance in that direction, I, I am sure we are going to see significant progress in, uh, in the months and the years to come. And let me just switch, given that your limitation of your time, to another important issue that is um, affecting the, the, the country, and that is uh, the demographic issues. My understanding is that significant number of youth, some estimate 200,000, have left the country, and many, some of them returned because of the coronavirus. How are you planning to deal with this, with this issue? Because it relates to unemployment. These youth need, need work, and they have not been able to find the kind of jobs that they want in the country itself. So many of them have left. How are you planning? Do you have any plan to rectify the situation, to encourage them to immigrate or to come back to the country, and how and whether or not this, the conditions will be created so that they can stay once once the the coronavirus is uh, is uh, sort of dealt with effectively. The numbers of uh, people uh, are never set uh, set in stone of people who are leaving and who are coming back to the country because we live in a uh, globalized world. Huh? So uh, people do take jobs, they change places of uh, basic inhabitants, they come back. Uh, however, uh, approximating our standards to the standards of the European Union, uh, we think that uh, will be one of the main reasons uh, to return to have uh, all of the people who have fled to uh, to return. We are seeing smaller numbers now, probably maybe due to the COVID, uh, but also to the situations in the uh, also European uh, European Union uh, countries. But you know, uh, there was big numbers of people who were disappointed with the uh, prospects of the uh, of the governing in the country. Uh, it was a a country that had blocked Euro-Atlantic integration. It was a country that was uh, foreseen uh, as, a, a, let's say, uh, with a government that has uh, absolute no interest in the rule of law, in partnership with the EU and the United States. And uh, the, the changes that were done in 2017 with uh, the name, with the new government, with changing the name, with changing the constitution, with reaching deals with our uh, neighbors, with the in, uh, get, becoming part of NATO, with, uh, you know, orienting this country towards the European Union, and attracting much more European Union investments, American investments as well. Right. I think it has changed a lot for the for the uh, citizens. Uh, so, uh, the, from my perspective, from what I see, is that the citizens wanted to have security in their country. They needed to know where this country is going. And, uh, of course, you know, we cannot provide the same conditions, especially finan financial, as, let's say, Germany or UK or Switzerland. Uh, however, uh, we can uh, provide, you know, we, we are making our efforts to approximate our standards with those in the region primarily, but then also with the European Union. Yeah. And I think that people have started to uh, have started to see hope within the country. So yeah, having I, a country I, I, which is, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. 
No, I'm saying, you know, obviously, you know, given the coronavirus and the the, the government needs to to focus on it as a prerequisite to to the economic recovery. My question to you, as far as the youth are concerned, is there any sort of national mobilization of various sources to ensure that once the coronavirus is dealt with effectively, there are now greater, not lesser, opportunity for the youth to come back and stay. Uh, because, I mean, as far as I am, not just in, in North Macedonia, uh, everywhere in the Balkans, people are leaving, um, especially the invisible brain drain, so to speak, is taking place, which is which is critically important for these countries as they continue with their economic, social uh, development. So is there from... Yes, the actually, country, fortunately, uh, you know, the government is composed. Come again? Is uh, this a new government, and the, does it have now a sort of a national mobilization program to actually address this issue of the youth unemployment once the coronavirus is dealt with? Yes, absolutely. I, uh, fortunately, both of the coalition partners that comprise the government coalition have the, the youth as a priority, and we have both uh, set our priorities into the government program. Uh, uh, of course, we are supporting all the uh, international organization conventions with regards to the youth, and we're opening uh, opportunities for them. Uh, let's say 98% of our composition in parliament from the party that I represent are new and young people. Uh, so we started to show the reform uh, from the very, you know, uh, lowest levels possible, basically from the reforms within the party, then the candidate list for members of parliament, as well as the government, our average age in government is 40. Uh, so uh, we are giving uh, opportunities to the youth to prove, to take upon themselves responsibility because it's uh, another, another, another priority for, for us. Uh, in practical terms, it will be difficult to give you any practical uh, examples apart from this. That's, you know, the average age of the government members uh, is about 40, as well as the same thing in, in, in Parliament, in the parliamentary group, uh, but also the opportunities in uh, youth policies uh, that right, right. Uh, the government is adopting. Yeah, let, let me, if I may, uh, move to another subject because I am uh, looking at the clock and I don't want to detain you much longer than necessary. There's a question of, of the, the, the demographic issue in terms of the last census was taken going back to 2002, I believe, and there was no real census since then. And there's some opposition by various uh, ethnic groups, including the Albanian that uh, many of these smaller groups claim numbers that actually do not correspond to the actual numbers of these people in the country. Is there any plan to, to, to get into, to, um, uh, to establish a date for a new census in order to determine what is the composition, the dem demographic composition of the country? Because after all, this is going to, it's very important in terms of allocation of funds, a recognition of the various ethnicity related to language related to all kind of things. That is, without a census, without knowing the composition, the demographic composition, the government in some ways is handicapped to dealing with the various 
but the differences between the various ethnic groups. What in Afghanistan, yeah. if you have census, and and from their perspective, our numbers. Some people say, for example, that uh, Macedonia has roughly two million one or two million two. Others say no, Macedonia has only one point six million. What what is your views on the in terms in terms of numbers and in terms of the last census that we had is two thousand and two. And yeah. we had another effort to conduct a census in 2011, which failed. And uh, now, last year, we started to uh, prepare for the census. We drafted a law, which was uh, accepted by uh, both parties that comprise the government coalition. It was submitted to the parliament, but the opposition uh, blocked it. And then, as I told you, we entered the cycle of early elections. Now this current government reconfirmed the law on census that was uh, drafted by the previous government and submitted it to the parliament. We are committed to holding the census in April uh, next year. Uh, hopefully the opposition will not block uh, the law in, in parliament and will join the process uh, constructively. So we will have a census uh, next year in April. Why? I mean, if you have a majority in the parliament, why the opposition? Can the opposition still be in a position well, to? The opposition block? is threatening is threatening to boycott the census. So if the opposition is boycotting the oh, census, that means let's say one quarter of the country is not participating in the census, and what's the point of holding the census? But that would be highly irresponsible, especially for a country that has had, hasn't had a census for almost twenty years now. So, and, and if you if you were to predict, you know, just a little prediction prediction in terms of uh, uh, how do you see uh, finally the the process of integration is going to go? Uh, how do you see just to sum up to sum up what we have discussed? Uh, how do you see the um, economic recovery is going to is going to take place? Do you have a sort of a vision? What is your vision uh, for the for the next year or so? We are hoping to catch up with Montenegro and Serbia on the negotiations path, even to surpass them, uh, because we are really committed to uh, conduct all the reforms in the country. Uh, so uh, hopefully with the opening of the accession talks, much more of the European Union funds will be coming into the country, which will be helping the economic recovery. Uh, within the country and as well as the approximation of our economy with that of the members of the European Union. And uh, this is how we see our future. So in December to open up the talks and then to start opening uh, opening uh, different chapters of uh, accession talks with the European Union. As I said, hopefully catch up with Serbia and Montenegro, which were initially foreseen to join the European Union by 2025. Uh, so that would be fantastic for our citizens. We are very glad as a society, we are very happy that we joined uh, NATO. It was a strategic goal of all of us, of different generations. And together with uh, our neighboring countries, we are contributing to also an integrated region. So what we want to see is a region without borders, an integrated region of Southeast Europe, of Western Balkans, and the entire region to be integrated into the European Union without disputes between the neighbors, a peaceful uh, resolution to the Kosovo-Serbia dispute, integration of all of our countries into the European Union, 
as well as a resolution of the issues in Bosnia and all of us together to be on the same path. This is what I would wrap it up as, uh, as our that's thoughts. Your, that's, your, that's your vision. And I, I think it's, it's admirable to you see that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I've always been a supporter of what the Balkans trying to do. I, I take it that Bulgaria's uh, position is, is no longer affecting the integration process. The, 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 the initial conflict with Bulgaria about you know, historical um, issues that there was some dispute between the two, between your country and Bulgaria. This has been resolved, hasn't it? Well, we thought it was resolved with the agreement that was signed in August 2017 between the two prime ministers. And, uh, of course, Bulgaria supported our NATO bid. However, now uh, there is a dispute that has opened up between the two countries with regards to the implementation of that good neighborly uh, agreement between Skopje and uh, Sofia, between our two capitals. And Bulgaria has been uh, raising concerns and uh, uh, we, you know, hope that it will be not, it will not be affecting uh, the intergovernmental conference in uh, December. There's a dispute on uh, some of the historical figures and the language issue between the two countries as well as the uh, culture. Uh, and uh, it, is, it is the top issue in our country in the last uh, 10 days or so, and it will continue to be. Uh, we have a meeting with our Bulgarian counterparts, in the big, I believe, on the 10th or 11th of November. Also, it will be part of the uh, Berlin process as we are co-chairing together with Bulgaria and hopefully we will resolve all the open issues by, by then. Well, I, think, I want to thank you so much. You know, I, I uh, appreciate your summation and I wish you all the luck in the world. Uh, this young government, um, you are uh, in a position that you can do a great deal, I'm sure. And I do hope that uh, one of these days, sooner than later, we'll have a chance to talk face to face. Uh, and I look forward to that uh, time. Again, I thank want you. to thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.